0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
2: And we have something new for you today, as frequent listeners of the show will know. We frequently connect with scientists, established scientists, whether they be federal researchers or university researchers, and talk with them about some of the work that they're doing and how that work informs the conservation and management of waterfowl and wetlands in North America. What we're going to be doing today and what we're going to do periodically going forward is connecting with some of the other people that are involved in this research. And that includes the graduate students. A lot of the research that is conducted across North America in this regard is actually done by, or has significant involvement by graduate students. I certainly came uh, came through that route and, uh, and we get involved in all sorts of research and most times it's the grad students that have some role in this. And so what we want to do is connect with some of those graduate students that are actively in the process of conducting their research or otherwise planning to do the research for a number of reasons. We want we want to expose our listeners to some of the new and innovative research that's actually happening. We want them to be, want you all to be able to hear that from the people, from the graduate students that are actually doing this work. But then we're also going to be targeting this discussion and the ones that will come uh, in the future to a subset of graduate students, a particular subset of graduate students, uh, and those are recipients, those are the individuals that have received what we call our Ducks Unlimited Fellowships. These uh, These are fellowships that are granted to graduate students, young professionals, waterfowl professionals that are involved in some cutting edge, very important research for waterfowl, and wetlands, and these there is pretty strong competition for these fellowships. They are awarded annually by Ducks Unlimited, Ducks Unlimited Canada, uh, and I think there are eight of these in total. And so we're going to be throughout the year connecting with the recipients of these of these awards on an annual basis. So. So we all can hear about them, hear about what they're up to and to give them an opportunity to share to share some of the exciting work that they are doing. So with that background today, I am really excited to welcome in the very first uh, guest, I guess, formally in this in this vein. And that is Cheyenne Beach, a master student at Western Illinois University. Cheyenne, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Cheyenne, I have to correct myself just a little bit there. We had Casey C. on an earlier episode where we spoke with her about some of her research. Casey is another recipient of one of these fellowships. But at that time, this idea of kind of formalizing these these sessions, these these individual episodes with specific recipients of these fellowships had not been established. So, I want to make sure I back up and, and give due credit to Casey for, for uh, her appearance in this regard as well. Anyway, let's move on to uh, to sort of an introduction of you. The I'll, I'll briefly just here uh, tell people that your research involves <laughs> lesser scalps. And it's a pretty neat study in uh, evaluating the effects of trematodes uh, on lesser scoff. And I'm going to let you save all the details for you, but just to kind of give people a a bit of an idea of what we're going to talk about. Uh, Now, I want to hear from you on just some of your background, your personal background and how you wound up at Western Illinois University.
1: So I grew up in central New York, very outdoorsy family, a lot of hiking and biking and hunting and... I went to a SUNY school, SUNY stands for State University of New York. I went to SUNY Morrisville, that's also in central New York, Uh, studied natural resource conservation there. And then I've kind of bounced around the country, um, working a bunch of different jobs focused around wetlands and I really honed into waterfowl a few years ago and I think I got really hooked in with waterfowl when I was up in working a job in North Dakota and the following year I had worked for ducks unlimited on a project up there. And so from then on, I've been locked in, but yeah, I've been all over the country working different uh, jobs with, Invasive species, um, shorebirds,
2: and waterfowl. So, so this isn't your first rodeo when it comes to waterfowl, and that's that's not uncommon. Most of the the graduate students that that end up studying something that's waterfowl specific have been introduced to this group of birds and the conservation around them through some of these summer internships. A lot of them are summer internships, but others occur throughout other parts of the year as well. Uh, And that was certainly the case with me. And it sounds like it was the case with you as well. And it's pretty neat. I would imagine you had this same the same realization it's pretty neat because these being migratory birds they kind of you have to go to different places all across the country if you want to get a, a really good understanding of, of what they're about and it sounds like you have done some of that
1: yeah i've worked in um the breeding grounds and the wintering grounds and and the migratory you know these central migratory stopover areas um so yeah i it's definitely you go to the birds <laughs> not the other way around
2: but Cheyenne, I want to move on uh, here quickly to your to to the fellowship that you received. There are eight different fellowships that Ducks Unlimited, as a family of organization, awards every year. The one that you received is called the Edward D. and Sally M. Futch Graduate Fellowship, uh, and it's awarded to someone who is doing uh, innovative research in or, or research in waterfowl and wetlands conservation uh, across North America and i think you this is a new uh, new rec- you're a new recipient this year correct yes yep yeah uh, occasionally we have students that are that receive the fellowships for multiple years depending on their the, the level of support they need and what the resources are that are available to us so you're one of our new recipients this year and so i just want to take this opportunity to acknowledge the edward and sally futch family for their generous contributions that make this fellowship possible. And some of the other, I have to give credit to all the other private individuals, corporate partners that have enabled all the other fellowships. And we will get to those as we introduce the recipients and speak with the recipients of those as well. But in your case, a special thank you to the Edward and Sally Futch uh, family for their generous support of this fellowship. There's partly a reason why I didn't I didn't introduce the full title of your research It's number one, it's because there are a couple of words that are in there that I'm not sure that I could correctly pronounce. And so I'm going to leave that up to you.
3: <laughs> and I guess the
2: second was, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to introduce the overall title and what the, the work that you're doing. So tell our listeners the, the title of the research that you're involved in.
1: Yeah. So I am evaluating the body impacts or physiology impacts several different trematodes and these are the names of the trematodes sciathocato bushiensis and spirit globus so yeah that's a mouthful for both of them
2: yeah um, those are the ones that i was not about to try to pronounce <laughs> that's yeah
1: uh there's also a second one so we um we lump Spiritotrema in at the genus level. There's also trema pseudoglobus. Morphologically, they look extraordinarily similar, um, but they are different under DNA analysis. Um, but for my project, we lump them together. So that's another mouthful. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right. So, there's a number of things that we need to unpack there just in the overall introduction of this. And so, um, we're studying the effect of what you're actually referring to. uh, I read your proposal leading up to this as the sublethal effects of these trematode infections on Scott. And so, you know the first question is why is this even important so anytime we are coming up with a research question there's something behind that you know we develop the the question it's either of management concern or biological concern and then we formulate the study in order to answer that question but you know behind it all there's some reason why it's important so just start out cheyenne by uh by telling us why this important? Why this research is important? Why do we need to know about the sublethal effects of these trematodes on SCOP?
1: Absolutely. Um, so these trematodes are exotics. They don't belong in North America, but they're here now. They were carried over in the late 1800s. Um, so they're intermediate hosts. So parasites have crazy life cycles often. And these guys use an intermediate host. It's called the faucet snail. That's also an introduced species. Doesn't belong here. And it has made its way from the St. Lawrence River across the Great Lakes system. And it's in Wisconsin and Minnesota now. And it's currently in the upper Mississippi River. Scop. A lot of birds are affected by these trematodes. It's not just scop, but in the upper Mississippi River, scop are being heavily affected by these trematodes. Mortality is occurring on an annual basis. And then on top of that, scop are super important to the Mississippi flyway as a whole. You know, like something like 60-something 60, 60 percent of the scop harvest occurs in the Mississippi flyway. So if SCOP are disproportionately affected by these guys in the Mississippi Flyway, and they're you know very important to the Flyway, we want to know what we can do to you know kind of halt things, or you know maybe do some mitigation, and really just you know my study is really just trying to understand what the mechanisms are inside the birds um, and why they're being so disproportionately.
2: You know, scop is a, a species, uh, most of the listeners are going are, are gonna to know this, but scop is a species that's below the population level, population goals of the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. They are one of the few waterfowl species in North America that has seen a pretty noticeable decline here over the past 20 or so years. And add to that the fact that we have lacked a really great explanation for that decline and there are a number of hypotheses that are out there your research here is going to be lending some evidence to help you know uh, support or refute uh, one of those hypotheses and it kind of relates to the spring condition hypothesis if i understand correctly and that there's this idea that one of the one of the possible drivers of this decline could be um, some poor physiological condition that scomp are developing during their spring migration through the upper midwest due to a number of factors this possibly being one of those i think in the past the researchers had looked at selenium they were concerned about high selenium concentrations in scop on these mid-migration areas in the upper midwest and they thought maybe that was impairing recruitment reproduction of of SCOP. but i think we've kind of dismissed that through some collection of evidence and then there are a few other things related to Food supplies and how they may have changed in the in these mid migration areas, and um, I think the the jury is sort of is still out on that one to some extent. But then potentially adding to that is what you're describing here with these trematodes that they get from eating these uh, these faucet snails. In reading your in reading your proposal i know you cited some instances and i think you just referenced it a few minutes ago of mortality that these trematodes can actually cause um, how uh, how many what do we know about the level of mortality uh, for scop during spring migration caused by these trematodes and then is that is that the focus of your research or are you more interested in what we refer to as you know sublethal the, the could be effects that that are damaging to the physiology of the bird, uh, but they not, not necessarily to the point of of causing death. So two questions there: How, What do we know about the level of mortality? And then, then is that is that what you're looking at?
1: So first, I want to correct myself. I said about sixty percent of scalp are harvested in the Mississippi Flyway. It's about forty to fifty percent. So just to clear that up on um, mortality. Um, so I'm looking at these sublethal effects. So like you said, there's a lot of layers to you know, why SCOF are, why they declined. And then on top of that, why they're not recovering. Um, So we're trying to peel back a lot of these layers or hopefully peel back a lot of these layers with our question. Yeah, so like I said, we're looking at sublethal. We wanna know if the birds don't die, say they're up in Wisconsin, you know, they get infected, they end up being able to keep going. What body condition are they going to be in? Are they going to be able to reproduce? Are they going to be able to raise a brood? Is that a possibility with their body condition as they're continuing on migrating? Or are they going to end up just dying off later on? And I think your second question was mortality
2: levels. Yeah. What do we know about the level of mortality that SCOP are facing as they're? migrating through and is that is the mortality itself whatever that level is is that the biggest concern or are we thinking that maybe the bigger concern or potential sublethal effect i realize i keep asking you multiple questions here.
1: no you're fine you're fine um so yeah tr- tr- like the actual mortality it's not majorly concerning um so i looked up the so the usgs so U- united states geological survey their Wildlife Health Center, that's up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, they do all sorts of things. Um, and one of their things is kind of monitoring, you know, this mortality that's happening. Um, so they have a data set it's called the Whispers data set. And that's the Wildlife Health Information Sharing Partnership Events Reporting System. All sorts of diseases are reported to this database. And for the Upper Mississippi River system, Basically, since the early 2000s, on an annual basis, about 7,800 are dying. So it's not major, but it is definitely these sublethal effects that are
2: concerning. Yeah, and we don't know very much about those, right? We and that's I think that's the nature of your particular study, where you're using captive birds to study these sublethal effects, because you know otherwise you have to somehow measure a trematode uh, load in these birds on their, what what we want to know is how is the condition of the bird affected by these trematodes and then how long does that impaired condition persist into the breeding season as you described. So that means you got to follow these birds throughout this this extended period. And if you're dealing with wild birds, that's very, very difficult, if not impossible to do. And certainly when you try to figure out, is, is it going to impair their recruitment? That's another entire label, layer of def- difficulty to, to monitor. So you're using captive birds to study this, this question, right? Yeah. And so how does that work? How are you capturing the birds and what all is involved in that? Yeah, so we
1: did. um, We're going about it in two different ways. Already at the station I work at, Forbes Biological Station in Central Illinois, we do scop trapping in the spring. We banned or trap and banned scop. So I've taken some wild caught adults and put them in captivity and then put them through these trials. They're pretty short term trials. Uh, they only last 10 days. So on day, the first day of the trial, the, you know, a subset of birds are infected with these trematodes by day five, the trematodes should be adults and causing harm to the birds. And then by day 10, you know, they should be starting to die off the trematodes, not I hope not the birds, um, but <laughs> the trematodes should be starting to die off at that point in time. So we can capture, uh, you know, this kind of continuum. um, And we're taking blood samples throughout the trial to kind of see what happens, you know, from infection to adult stage of these trematodes and from adult stage to when the trematodes actually die off. And then we're also, uh, we collected some eggs up in North Dakota um, of lesser scrub and hatched them out. So then we have kind of this blank slate Compared to these wild caught birds that have, you know, all of this, all of
2: the parasites that a normal bird would have. I don't know very much about uh, how these trematodes affect the skull, but like, why do they die? Let's so, so why do they die? And then what aspect of the physiology is affected and why is it affected? Are these like tapeworms where they consume the nutrients that the birds are taking in and therefore the... The the birds just die of malnutrition uh, and starvation, effective starvation, or is there some other kind of disease transmission going on?
1: It's definitely the trematodes themselves taking in their own nutrients. Yeah, so they work just like um, a lot of other intestinal parasites. Um, these guys are you know relatively small, but they're little round guys, and they just do an incredible amount of damage, you know, opening these birds up and looking at them after they've been infected, they have completely destroyed some sections of intestine where other, you know, parasites that the scop have evolved with, they're not causing that amount of damage. And honestly, we don't know a whole lot about the whole mechanism, um, this whole relationship between the birds and the parasites. These trematodes in particular, we're not really sure why they cause so much damage.
2: Yeah. And so your research is going to be answering questions like, I think, if I understand this correctly, like the, how does the, the different quantity of trematode, are, are you studying the effect of different quantities of trematodes? Let me first ask that, or is it just, is it a standard level that, of dosage?
1: Right now we're going at a standard level of dosage. We went out trying to, yeah, we were going to do, you know, various levels of dosages um, and, you know, infect over a series of days as well. So you can get at this like, you know, I guess multiple infection and kind of replicate what would be happening As the birds are, you know, in these upper pools of the Mississippi River, day one of getting to the Mississippi River and starting eating these snails, they're not going to be affected yet by the trematodes. You know, there's a little bit, a couple of days of delay before those first round of trematodes really start taking hold. So, you know, they're slowly day by day up until about, you know, day five of being there slowly, you know, packing on. Layering on the amount of trematodes that they're exposing themselves to, but we first need to get this baseline and start seeing what's happening. So, um, you know, we've kind of scaled back, and that's what really I'm really trying to focus on.
2: Do we think some birds are able to withstand the effects of the trematodes, and then the trematodes eventually pass through the bird? Do we have any of that knowledge? Or once they consume these trematodes, are they are they with them, and are they just doomed? It's just a matter of time before we before they before they reach that final stage?
1: So, so far with my um, sublethal dosing, none of the birds have died on trial. So it's definitely, it has to be possible that, you know, some birds are able to move on with their lives in a, you know, maybe in a slightly worse body condition than when they first were exposed. Yeah, so that's definitely, you know, potentially happening.
2: But that's like the core, that's like the most important aspect of your study, right? Just trying to figure out or, or yes. <laughs> answering that question that I just posed to you is what do we know about whether these birds are able to survive or, or what kind of body condition they're able to, to come out of these infections with? And then are they able to recover uh, some body condition into the future? And I, I don't know how. how how many of those questions you're going to be able to answer. You know, the other aspect of this that I was thinking about while reading your proposal is that ideally we'd, we'd then like to have these birds be affected by the trematodes um, and then measure some sort of reproductive output. Um, but I don't think you're, you're able to do that, right? You're just kind of measuring the, the body condition of these different birds at different stages after infection, right?
1: Right, right, yeah. Ideally, that would be fantastic. But my project is kind of this: we've got to start somewhere, and this is where we're starting.
2: <laughs> yep, absolutely. I understand. You know, it's um, this is it's a really exciting project because it is. It's one of those aspects of waterfowl ecology where there's a bit of a bit of a, there's a little bit of mystery around it. It's like we, we've talked about the mortality. We don't think that mortality that we're observing in the upper Midwest is is significant enough to be contributing meaningfully to the overall scalp decline. But then the big unknown are these sublethal effects. Uh, and then, but but it's, it's kind of like the selenium um, concern that we had a few years ago. We thought that may be operating in the same way we're speculating here. Turns out that scalp were able to recover from those selenium loads pretty quick. They're able to kind of flush those through the body. Uh, and this... This may be the same thing here. We just don't know until we do the research uh, to answer answer that question. And, and you're exactly right. That's the way I was viewing this. Your study is a, is sort of the, the first foray into studying uh, in hand the effects of these trematode infections on the scalp. It's certainly pretty exciting to, to hear about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there were some studies back in you know, the early... Or I guess late eighties, early nineties, you know, birds were being heavily affected up in the St. Lawrence River around Quebec. Um, there was a study or a couple studies done in New Jersey, you know, a wide array of birds that are being affected. Everything from like swan to blue wing teal, you know, these things have been looked into briefly though. You know, it's not, we definitely do not have a full picture of what the heck is happening.
2: Well, Cheyenne, we're going to start wrapping up here. I have a couple of other questions for you. The first is just how far along into your research are you and do you have another field season or is this, uh, was this the, the last of your field seasons?
1: Yeah. So I am about uh, two thirds of the way through, I suppose. I have a trial coming up this fall. So it'll be my last trial and yeah, then we're wrapping up after that.
2: Okay. Well, I'm not going to ask you at this point to divulge any preliminary results. Um, I'm curious of that myself, but I'm gonna (laughs) I'm gonna resist the urge. (laughs) We will we'll connect with you again, likely once all of this is complete, to you know to to get the nitty gritty of what you actually discovered, Um, and where we may go next. uh, Obviously, there are a lot of questions about what are the implications of this if we do find that it has a uh, some sort of persistent effect on the condition and concerning effect on the condition of these birds. Well, then what? And again, it's kind of premature to have that discussion, as well, because we don't know what these potential effects are and if they are even worth being concerned about. Maybe the birds are healthy enough to, um, to withstand them. At least those that that don't die. So. Um, So we'll reconnect with you in in the future to hear about the final results. Last question I have for you relates to the partners involved in this research. We've mentioned many times that Uh, No project, whether it be a science project or a conservation on the ground conservation habitat work project, is done by any single entity. It's very, very rare these days. Uh, So I want to make sure that we give you an opportunity to acknowledge all of your your partners and your collaborators and supporters of this research.
1: Yeah. So the funding comes from the uh, Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, distributed by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Um, And then, you know, everybody that helps out on this project, all the folks at University of Illinois, uh, Illinois Natural History Survey, obviously folks at Western Illinois University. I have folks helping me out at Lafayette College. that's in Pennsylvania. And I also have folks helping me out at University of Arkansas, Monticello. So, yeah. Lots
2: of, lots of hands. Yeah. And, and of course the, 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 the DU fellowship folks that we mentioned already, they're an important player in this as well. And, and one thing I did want to stress here is something you mentioned that one of the key funders of this work is that it comes from the federal aid and wildlife restoration. That's commonly known as Pittman Robertson. And that money in that fund comes from the sale of, of, uh, of guns and ammunition and, and a few other things. And you know, that's that. This is an important example of how hunters and through their interest in this resource, their participation in this in these resource activities actually help fund some of the work that is enabling us to do a better job managing the resource for the use of, of uh, the current generation and future generations. So, uh, to all the hunters and archers and everyone else that contributes to the and robertson Fund through their purchase of of um, ammunition and guns, we we thank you for that. Um, so, Cheyenne, any final comments from you with regard to your research? We've enjoyed the opportunity to, to catch up with you and hear about this, and I hope the listeners have as well. Yeah, thank you
1: for having me. And you know, thanks for the fellowship. Um, it is fantastic. All I've got is just that Scott are confusing. So that's all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we have to start somewhere with, with some of these questions. And and it is, Scott do remain one of those species that are a bit perplexing. We're learning more with each passing year. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've come a long way. Uh, to draw a parallel to, to pintails in understanding what drove their declines for a number of years, pintails were much in the same, in the same boat where we saw some declines, but we weren't exactly hundred percent certain what was going on, what was driving those declines. We had some hypotheses and gradually through time, through investments in some well-crafted science, we were able to really dial in on, on, what's causing those declines, at least what's playing a big role in those declines. And we're on that same path with Scott and your research is an important part of that. And we thank you for it. We thank you for your participation in that. And thank you for joining us here on the podcast, Cheyenne. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for having me. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Cheyenne Beach, a master's student at Western Illinois University. We certainly appreciate her work on helping us understand more about SCOMP and what could possibly be explaining some of their decline. We look forward to the results that that she gets from this research. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, uh, for the great work he does editing these podcasts and getting them out to you, our listeners. And of course, you, the listeners, we thank you for joining us here on the podcast, spending your time with us. And, And we also thank you much. Thank you very much for your support, passion and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.